0: Hey, it's Guy here, hope you're well. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Thanks for listening. As always, I've just finished a early shift at the BBC today. This is the day before this podcast is published. Uh, I started at 4am, so I'm a little bit delirious now, but it was a good day, so I'm feeling good. I've also managed, though, to get myself a ridiculous injury. Fortunately, it's not serious, but I've got a scratch right down the middle of my forehead after playing hide-and-seek in the park on Monday, uh, I managed to walk straight into a branch. And so I've got a nice Harry Potter-style scar, which, fortunately, nobody see, really seems to notice at work today. I think I got away with it, but that's all I see when I look in the mirror. Anyway, let me know if you've got had any ridiculous uh, injuries that <laughs> you want to share. Tweet me at Guy Kilty, G-U-Y-K-I-L-T-Y, or at Creative Forces P. On Twitter, You can find us on Facebook as well, or Creative creativeforcespod at gmail.com. Send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Also, let me about, know about that, but also about any thoughts, any comments you've got about the podcast. Always love to hear from people who have listened and enjoyed or have any comments on uh, what's going on, so do get in touch. Anyway, this episode, uh, I speak to Rahaf Harfouche. Now, Rahaf uh, grew up in... Uh, was born in Syria, but she grew up in Canada, and she became fascinated by digital technology as a teenager, particularly social media and blogging, and now she's a best-selling author who focuses on the uh, impact of digital technologies on society and working life. Her first book, called Yes We Did, An Insider's Look at How Social Media Built the Obama Brand, uh, looks back at her time as a member of Barack Obama's digital media team during his 2008 presidential election campaign uh, and it looks at how social networking revolutionised political campaigning. And her second book, which is out this year, called "Hustle and Float: Reclaim Your Creativity and Thrive in a World Obsessed with Work," looks at the way that the, the constant hustle, which I know I'm part of of the digital world, where we're looking at, we're constantly online, we're constantly available, we're looking at, we're consuming news, we're reading emails, we're responding to everything. How it's affecting our mental and physical health and our creativity, and, and uh, negatively affecting all three of those. It's a really fascinating topic. Um, And in this interview, you can hear how Rahaf felt really scared at first when she moved to Canada when she was really young, couldn't understand what people were saying, what it was really like working on that 2008 campaign for Barack Obama. And a detail that I loved, why she kicks off every day by watching comedy. So, yeah, well, tell me about the dog. You're just saying that the dog might uh, interrupt us at any point, but what dog do you have?
1: So I have a very adorable uh, long-haired chihuahua. And I know when I say the word chihuahua, everyone thinks that they're little rat dogs. And some of them do look like rats. But she's really fluffy and she looks like a little squirrel or a little (laughs) fox. Her name is Pixel. Okay. And uh, she is my constant little shadow and companion because I work from home. So we're always together. Um, And she takes her job of announcing whenever someone comes in and out of the house or makes a movement or does anything that she deems as newsworthy she likes to give a little woof so um i just was uh letting you know that as my husband moves around she might uh, get very excited (laughs) and just bark a little bit so i'm sorry
0: she likes to broadcast the news
1: you know it's really funny because she it's really about telling me because when i come into the house she doesn't bark but if my husband comes into the house, she barks. So she's really communicating with me about what's going on. What's going on. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the the joys of, of of being the the dog person in the household.
0: So, and do, do you find having uh, Pixel around at home does that help you with your working from home? You know, the fact that you are there most of the time, we're working presumably from a, oh, a computer yeah. or oh, in an office. Yeah. How does it help you?
1: I mean, one, having dogs in any situation just makes the entire situation a million times better just because of their sweet, adorable little faces. Uh, Sometimes Pixel sits on my lap when I'm writing, which is just like really cute. But the most important thing is she's like a little Swiss clock. So when it's time to go out, she will come and she will start making noises and she will paw at my leg and she will get my attention. And so um, what's really nice about that is that when I do have a tendency to dive into my work and forget to eat, forget to, you know, forget to <laughs> go walking, forget to do anything. She's a, a very nice way that ensures that I'm getting up and going outside and going for a walk, taking a break. And so um, she acts as a sort of the, the the break enforcer, making sure that I'm taking regular pauses during my day. Yeah. So that actually does do a good job because I think if I didn't have her, I might be tempted to skip out on a walk, for example. But the crazy thing is is that the walk always, always helps clear my mind, put things in focus, gives me a chance to recover. So it ends up being the best thing for me to do for my work. Mm. Um, It's just when you're in the moment, you're like, oh, do I really want to go? But then you go and you come back and you're like, yes, I've got that section. I've got that research. I've got that clarity Mm. and that distance from what I'm doing. So I find her incredibly um, incredibly helpful to have around for sure. So uh, little mascot.
0: I guess that feeds into the ideas in your latest book, which we'll come back to in a bit. But um, I was interested when I was just looking at your Twitter feed just before we uh, just started recording. And I saw you've been tweeting furiously about the Avengers films recently, the new Avengers film. Yes.
2: yes. What,
0: you, you said that they've been a constant companion, the uh, the Marvel film. So just tell me a bit about that. What, you, you're obviously a big fan.
1: I'm a, I am a big fan, and you know, like I think um, people in our generation were very, very lucky because we got these me like these sort of two blockbuster franchises you know I when I grew up with Harry Potter mm. and that was you watch you know read the first book when I was 13 and I think the the last movie when I was like 24 or something and there was something really beautiful about going on this long journey sometimes I feel like the um, the content that we consume is so short form all the time mm. that it's very rare to have that longevity to be able to really grow with the characters so we had the Harry Potter franchise now we have the any game Uh, sorry the the, the Avengers franchise Mm. and you know I saw Iron Man in 2008 right for the (laughs) first time and to sort of be able to check in they were my go-to videos for and go-to movies when I was traveling Uh, more often than not you would find a movie or two on the airplane entertainment system or I'd have them on my iPad Mm. and so there are so many times during the years where I would be waiting for a flight or in an airport or alone in a hotel room somewhere or in a car or you know just out and, and, and traveling and on my own and feeling jet lagged or tired or writer's block or whatever was going on and there was always a marvel movie to watch something to look forward to mm. and it ended up becoming almost like a for me anyway a little bit of a security blanket because <laughs> it's it was always funny to see you know you're struggling with writer's block you're struggling with something and like there they are literally fighting for <laughs> the world and you're like maybe my writer's block is not as dramatic as i'm making it out to yeah. be and it was just always sort of like a fun thing to connect to these characters and um Yeah, it was very moving to see uh, Endgame. I'm not going to say any spoilers, but (laughs) just to see that sort of end of an era is quite significant. You know, it's 11 years and 22 movies. That's a significant amount of time for a viewer to spend in another universe. And um, I was just was feeling very grateful for the effort and the work that it would that had been put in to bring those stories to life.
0: Mm, it's a big chunk, isn't it? I mean, what was it about those films then? Do you think that you chose those films rather than others when you were in those moments, you know, you say where you were, you know, traveling or whatever? What was it about those particular films that you really enjoyed?
1: I mean, I love superhero movies. I love the, you know, the hero's journey. I loved. Particularly how when you were introduced to each of the characters, they started out as individuals, but then eventually came together in a sort of family. Mm. And when you really think about it, um, each one of the Avengers, in their own way, had quite a sad backstory, right? These are characters that have baggage, and these are characters mm. that have gone through some things. Everyone from you know, Black Widow to Captain America, they've had... Some horrible things happen to them. So I think in, in the essence, what we love about superheroes is that despite their abilities, what really draws us to them is their humanity. It's their resilience. It's their um, triumph in face of sacrifice and in, fe- in the face of grief or loss. And I, I think there was just something that I always felt quite comforting and encouraging about those movies that mm. they got up again. You know, even especially the last one that I love, Captain Marvel, It was this idea that no matter what happens to you, you, it's not about, you know, not to sound very cliche, but it's not about Mm. how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you stand back up. And a lot of the times I feel as creative professionals, the work that you're producing is so personal to you right these are Mm -hmm. your ideas your characters your babies your words your and you're putting these pieces of yourself out there as Brené Brown says in the arena where you're gonna Mm -hmm. get your ass kicked and you're gonna bleed and you're gonna fail and people are gonna hate it and people are gonna say mean things and so you know by no means am I comparing myself to superheroes but (laughs) I just love this idea of reminding ourselves that you know getting beat up is just a Part of the game and you have to just keep getting up and i think that's a really good that resilience and that adaptability is a, a really good thing that just always brought me so much comfort
0: yeah and i think you're right i mean for all creative people or for a lot of people who do creative stuff it is a scary prospect isn't it putting putting that work out there whatever it is you've done it can be a very a scary time to put it out into the public public domain
1: yeah i mean it's literally a piece of you Mm. so it's very hard when people say oh don't take it personally but it's very hard not to take it personally you know when you are uh essentially like getting your own ideas and your thoughts and your beliefs and the things that you care about and you're creating something that comes from you and you're putting it out into the world like there's nothing more personal for me as a creative professional than Mm. that Hmm. So if somebody, uh, you know, and I've learned, obviously, over the course that you have to develop a, uh, uh, oh, oh, hold on a second, there's,
0: there's pixel. I'm
1: just gonna, I'm just gonna kick her, I'm just gonna kick her out of here. <laughs> okay. I'm just gonna close the door, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I've learned, obviously, over time, that it's not about not caring what people think, it's about caring what the right people think, Um, you know? So for me, the right people are my family and friends, my colleagues, other people that are in the arena with me. And then at one point in my career, I realized, like, I don't care if a random person I don't know has an opinion about my work. Like, Mm. I don't need to take their opinion into account. But I do care what my friends think, what my colleagues think, what the people that are in the field think. Like, that's good feedback. Mm. But, you know, do I care about John Doe from Kansas (laughs) who's going to send me a mean message because he hated a chapter that I wrote? It's like, wait, why are we giving equal opportunity to Mm. anybody to give their opinion on anything? So that was a very important survival instinct, I'm going to say, that developed over the course of my career. Because at the very beginning, Mm. I used to read every blog comment and take it very personally in every email and every tweet. And then they're like, this doesn't really matter
0: Hmm. what what point was it then when you realized that was there something that made you realize that or did someone tell you that or did it just evolve over time
1: okay this is a funny story so (laughs) i hope it's a funny story but um a couple of years ago i wrote a very tongue-in-cheek article it was very much in in just uh a joke you know about the pokemon go game mm.
2: um
1: which i played and which i enjoyed um but i was just making a philosophical sort of very lighthearted muse saying what if you look at the digital behavior essentially what we're doing is we're poaching because we're training people to go out into like parks to <laughs> capture these digital animals these creatures against their will to mm. confine them and then to force them to fight each other like it was it wasn't a serious critique it was literally just having a good time yeah. and um we posted this article just as a as as a a philosophical commentary like could we maybe guide more conservation oriented behavior it, was, it wasn't serious at all <laughs> and people like i don't know what happened but i got some like very angry messages. (laughs) Um, And that was a very big wake up call, you know, but they were like angry, people were like, I hope you die, you're the worst, you're a terrible writer, you're so dumb, you don't know anything. And it was just such a level of rage that I did not expect at all that in some ways, it sort of shocked me. And I was like, you know what, there are some people that are gonna love what you do, there's gonna be some people that are gonna hate what you do. But I get to decide whether or not those opinions matter Mm. and i think it's an important distinction because i do believe that ignoring everything and not listening to feedback and not listening to constructive criticism is not the answer you have to listen to that as a writer as a creator you know as much as we would love to feel like Everything we create is perfect. Mm. The reality is there's skill sets that need to be improved. And so very early on, I I was always very open in having people give me constructive criticism uh, in my writing because I knew that if I was getting it from the right people, then those people's intent was to help me get better. So I didn't take that personally. I knew they were trying to help me.
2: Mm. And
1: so I started distinguishing between the types of feedback I was getting, what was helpful, what was not helpful. Someone telling me to die, probably mm. not helpful. Someone telling me, hey, you know, like you're using your subject structure, your vocabulary or this or your, you know, that was very helpful because mm. it's a skill that I wanted to improve. So that was sort of the instinct where I made a very, that was the instance, sorry, where I made a very conscious decision to just be quite intentional with what feedback in general in my entire information ecosystem i accepted and i looked for and what i completely ignored
0: Hmm. i guess it's a weird thing though isn't it with creative work because yeah while it's important to ignore the sort of crazy negative comments you also do need or to be successful you do need random people to to like or enjoy it too don't you so there's a weird sort of thing going on isn't there you need People that you don't know to like it on some level, because to be successful, but also you need to be able to ignore the the negative side.
1: I mean, yeah, and that's kind of I I think the I, I think the the balance comes in creating the that equilibrium where it's not you can't have too much of either, you know. Mm. So if 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 I write something and the overwhelming reaction is everybody is upset about it, then I'm not going (laughs) to just ignore that. That's obviously going to be a signal to me. Yeah. You know, but it's about sort of differentiating between the the type of feedback. I mean, imagine, um, you know, I, I always like to think about like historical, uh, like historical events or historical people hmm. where it's like, imagine you're seeing somebody, you know, repainting the the Sistine Chapel, mm-hmm. right? And so, <laughs> you know, Michelangelo is like, he's, he's in there and he is, he's, he's painting it. And then you have some random dude walks in and it's just <laughs> like, that sucks. You're <laughs> yeah. the worst. (laughs) You're kind of like, wait, what are we doing here? Just some (laughs) random person off the street being like, this is dumb, you know? And so that's the kind of thing versus I'm sure there is a community of artists and people that would be able to have a, a constructive conversation around the technique and stuff. So mm. I think it's uh, for me, honestly, all of this technology and all of this feedback and all of this chatter, it's like, if you let it get out of control, mm. it's sort of like in all of those superhero movies. I don't know. I saw the trailer for, for dark Phoenix mm. and how, um, you know, Jean gray, she's getting bombarded by the uncontrolled and thoughts of everybody else. And I was like, are we all kind of dark Phoenix on mm-hmm. Twitter these days? Like we're just getting bombarded with so much. So it's up to us to set those filters and set those controls and say, look, Mm. everyone is screaming about everything all the time. I then have to be responsible for my own mental well-being, my own personal development professionally Mm. as well with my skill set. So I have to be very careful and be strategic in deciding what I let into my space and what I don't. And that, I think, is going to be the make or break between somebody who uses Twitter and gets a lot of value out of Twitter, who gets a lot of connection, a lot of great ideas, a lot of new friends, and somebody who just feels depressed and stressed out and overwhelmed because Mm. they're not controlling that stream properly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Twitter, again, actually just thinking about you, um, I noticed some of your tweets are in French. So is that, are you bilingual? Did you grow up in a bilingual house?
1: Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in a trilingual. Uh, I'm Syrian uh, I'm Syrian and then when my parents moved to Canada uh, in Canada they have this incredible program in the english-speaking part called French immersion where because French is one of our national languages mm. you have the opportunity in public school to do a large amount of your curriculum in French so I was incredibly lucky to um, grow up and and speak French and English and Arabic
0: yeah.
1: um, and so uh, living in France it's been fantastic because it's a uh, it's, it's it's obviously a, a key to the culture and to connecting with people here.
0: Mm. So when did your parents move to Canada?
1: In 1989. So when I was about five, six.
0: OK, so your first five, six years were in Syria. Yeah. So what was that like, The the move? Do you remember much of it?
1: I remember, uh, you know, I remember seeing the snow when we first landed. I remember the plane being really big. I remember uh, not understanding that we had moved uh, in the sense that I turned on the radio uh, and was listening to, I honestly, I think it was like, I'm trying to remember the song. I'm going to say, and it's probably was like Toto you know, somewhere in Africa, that 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 <laughs> song. Um, but I remember listening to that song and being very afraid because I didn't understand the words. I, I thought something had happened to me that I was no longer mm. understanding the words because I didn't speak English. Mm. And so, um, you know, my parents had to explain like, no, we're in a different country and they speak a different language. And so I remember that being very confusing, like being confused that people, that I would speak to people, to my kindergarten teacher, try to say something and that she wouldn't, understand me so i remember that Mm. um and then the snow and uh the really the snow because i'd never seen so much snow before we came (laughs) right in the middle of december of 1989 and Mm. so huge snowstorm and stuff and those are are yeah probably some of the most defining memories of um of moving there
0: and was there a particular reason that your parents moved
1: uh, my father, uh, my father's a, an engineer, my mother is an architect, and I think my father has always been an incredibly wise man in being able to see uh, the writing on the wall. And I think he wanted us to have um, a stability and opportunities that mm. I just don't think we could have gotten in, in Syria. And, uh, you know, coming to Canada was the greatest i always say it was the greatest gift he could have given us um, um you know we're three girls he had three daughters because uh, it gave us the opportunity to to access an education, both from like a schooling, but also as a society, you know, exposed to different languages, different cultures, um, have access to accessible education, to accessible healthcare, uh, to policies that were quite welcoming, but also crucially, and I wouldn't realize how important this was until I got much, much older, was the opportunity to develop a Canadian identity without sacrificing my Syrian heritage. Mm and canada is very good at accepting people into um, the umbrella of being canadian while still encouraging them to keep the parts of their culture that honors where they came from and and, you know who they are Mm. and i think that was an incredible gift because i always felt very grounded in both being syrian and being canadian Uh, and that's something that i didn't realize that everyone had a chance to to do because as I grew up and moved abroad and met a lot of different people there are a lot of people that struggled with you know am I this or am I that and where am I and do I have to choose and I guess what I've always loved one of the many things I love about Canada is I never felt like I had to choose being Canadian naturally encompassed Mm. me being Syrian as well and you know now with the state of the world and having lived in Switzerland and in the U.S. and in France like I recognize that for the true gift Mm. that
0: it is were those early years tough though for you and your sisters as well like you know not starting from scratch you know you say you were scared listening to the radio i mean going to school was it tough having to try to fit in try to learn the languages
1: honestly i don't think so children are so resilient i think Mm. it was much tougher for my parents you know my my father spoke English, um, and French. uh, But my mother did not. So my mother just spoke Arabic. So she really had to leave behind her family, her network, her career, and Mm. come to this new country, very isolated, and figure it out. And I often look at, you know, what they did. And I am so impressed by it, because it was incredibly difficult to come and really start with nothing and then build up a life here and she did everything she tutored she you know she tutored people in arabic she worked at tim hortons which is one of the fast food joints she mm-hmm. was doing everything she could to make ends meet until you know that we got on our feet and so i think that was very difficult and again you know as a child you see your parents struggle a little bit but you know they always did such a good job in shielding us from that mm. in making sure that we had everything that we wanted. And in hindsight, again, as an adult, I, I didn't realize um, the extent of the struggle of what my mother was going through, mm. learning a new language, being a new country, assimilating into a new way of living, not having family nearby. You know, mm. Syria, my mom had her aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins, and we had a very big family group there to go to just being quite isolated. And so I think, in hindsight, as an adult looking back on that, um, you just—it's just massive respect because she sacrificed everything so that we would have a, a shot mm. at a better future.
0: And are they still in Canada?
1: Yeah, they're still in Canada. Um, and uh, it's funny because my my mother uh, just has grown so much and just like loves so nice to see, you know, she just loves Canada. Now, now we joke that she's more Canadian now <laughs> that, you know, she's very much appreciates the, the, you know, the, 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 the parts of sort of being Canadian. Mm. Um, so it's, it's been luckily, we're very lucky that it was quite a happy ending of a story that my mm. dad managed to build a business and my mom managed to get back into closer to her field of expertise. She works uh, for an interior design firm in mm. Toronto now. Mm. And so that was great because, you know, there are a lot of people that, are not that lucky.
0: Mm. And what was the business your dad built so, then?
1: So my dad built uh, like a, an information, an informatics consulting firm um, that uh, specialized in sort of like technology. And uh, then now he works as a professor at Harvard.
0: Right. Okay. So he's done well.
1: He's yeah. I think the entire Harfouche clan has 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 done has done pretty well. But honestly, because so much of it was. The context that we were in. Mm. Um, and that's what so much of the book looked at, which is we have such a, a, a tendency to say, well, I worked really hard. Mm. And I did, and my parents did. And they definitely worked hard, but a lot of people work hard. We mm. also have to account for the incredibly lucky context of university that wasn't super expensive, healthcare mm. that was free, access to—I um, don't know—a public school system where your child got to learn a new language. Like, so those things also played a huge role. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, hard work was important, and and we all did that. But I, I I've learned to become a lot more. Sensitive to just throwing all of success on the bandwagon of hard Mm. work because there's so much luck that took place there as well. Mm. And I think that that was a big thread of hustle and float because so many people look at their lives and say, Well, I'm not where I want to be. I must not be working hard enough. Mm. I must not be doing enough. I need to do more. I need to push further. And yes, hard work is always important, but it cannot be the totality of the story that we tell ourselves about our achievements.
0: Mm. So which city was it that you grew up in then? Which city did they move to or or town? Toronto. Okay. We lived in Toronto. So what was life like then in Toronto then, you know, growing up there?
1: I love Toronto. I love growing up in Toronto. I love growing up in Canada. I, um, you know, again appreciate did not appreciate or did not realize how special the multicultural experience was until I went abroad. But, mm. you know, our high school, for example, was super, super multicultural. So we grew up celebrating and learning about Yom Kippur and Chinese New Year and Diwali and and Ramadan and like really understanding the nuances and of of, of those celebrations. And it was you know, very idyllic. I mean, don't get me wrong, Canada has its own problems. It's not perfect by any stretches of the imagination. But mm. from my experience growing up, I was very fortunate to be exposed to a lot of different foods and cultures and languages and religions and perspectives and opinions and understanding how to navigate uh, shared space as a society with people from very different backgrounds, um, from this baseline of, of tolerance I I think was really great. And mm. I had a gr- I mean, I had a lovely, a lovely childhood um, growing up. And, um, you know, so I, yeah, I think Toronto was a wonderful city, great food, great people. And then er- at the early stages of my career, um, Toronto, uh, and I'm sure like many other cities, but Toronto has a very tight knit Uh, community of entrepreneurs and tech people and those people uh, are not only tight-knit they're very generous Mm -hmm. so when i was first starting out my career that community as you know just a new graduate that can with no experience no connections no network that community really embraced me took me under their wing Um, explained things to me, showed me the ropes, gave me access to opportunities. So uh, I always credit so much of my career to the generosity of this tribe of people that, Mm. um, you know, that I was able to be a part of, like the Toronto tech scene during, I'm going to say 2006, when I was until 2009, when I moved from Toronto, Mm.
2: um,
1: those people have become lifelong friends that I'm still in touch with today. And they mentored me and helped me and um, guided me uh and that was also again going back to the luck part of it that was also quite a fortunate
0: thing mm. so what was the dream when you were in high school what were the what were your ambitions then
1: i wanted to be a vet right because i love animals <laughs> um and then did you have a family at happened. that time
0: or did you no
1: you know my family so uh my mom she's changed now but you know, in Syria, we didn't really do the whole family pets thing. That's mm. just, wasn't a, a part of our culture. And so even though we begged and begged, uh, we <laughs> never really got, never got a chance to have a dog. Um, again, in hindsight, my mom was probably right. You know, she's like, they're both working multiple jobs, raising, like it probably was not a great, a great situation. Uh, but I did have a neighborhood dog walking business that I started mm. <laughs> when I was eight right. uh, that I ran for several years. So I got the chance to sort of have neighborhood dogs, um, and I volunteered, uh, at a vet clinic, um, throughout high school, sort of as like a part-time thing to, to, to gain the ropes, to understand the ropes. Mm. Um, and then social media happened and that just, I just fell in love with that, you know, blogging and writing and connecting to people and making friends around the world. It seemed like it opened up a whole new universe, okay. um, of opportunities. Just, and just, I just for a minute though, you, you
0: set up the dog walking business at eight. So how yeah, how did that come about how did how did you decide to do that or what what triggered that decision?
1: Uh, we had a, a lady that lived in our neighborhood. Uh, her name was Mrs. Jacobson mm-hmm. and she had a dog and then she had to have some sort of back surgery or something where she was incapable of taking care of the dog. And, um, because we knew her as a neighbor, she said, listen, I'll pay you a dollar if you come <laughs> and walk my dog twice a day. And I was like a dollar. Amazing. Yes, please. <laughs> so I started doing that cause that was big money, yeah. you know, at eight. Um, so I started doing that and then eventually people around the neighborhood uh, would see me and they would say, oh, like, can you walk our dog? <laughs> and so I would come home from school, you know, and I would take the keys that people had entrusted me with and yeah. go into their homes and take their little dogs. I think it was like I was walking. i never walked them at the same time. I was just too scared to do that. So I'd actually just walk each dog in- individually. Yeah. Um, I think I had about five dogs. Um, You know, there was Shadow the Border Collie and Pepper the (laughs) Terrier. And, um, you know, so like there was like a a Cavalier Charles Charles Spaniel, I remember, and a German Shepherd puppy. And so um, and a Pekingese. And so like, uh, yeah, that was I just love have always loved dogs and thought I would want to do that. But then when I volunteered um, at a vet clinic, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this all day every day well what what, what was was it about
0: what was it about the vet clinic that you didn't enjoy
1: okay so what happened was like my first week on the job they were like oh just take this vial of whatever and put it in the fridge in the back and Hmm. i guess i opened up the wrong fridge there was a (laughs) fridge that was just filled with (laughs) the bodies of animals that had been put down and i was like i can't do this that's like that no that was just you know what I can do without that. I could love <laughs> animals and support animals, but like I, that just really traumatized me. Really? Um, but I did end up doing it for, for uh, like a couple of summers during high mm-hmm. school. So um, just to make sure. And then when social media happened, actually I'll tell you my, my father again, a very mm-hmm. wise man, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, I want to do something in writing. I want to do something, you know, I, you know, maybe I want to do something in sciences. Maybe I wanted to be a vet. Like I really didn't know. And he gave me the best piece of advice. And he said, go and study business because mm-hmm. business is the foundation upon which everything else is built. You want to be a writer? You'll need to negotiate contracts. You want to mm-hmm. be a vet? You'll need to run your own vet clinic. You want to be an artist? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Whatever it is that you want to do, understanding the mechanism through which money comes in and out is going to be an incredibly important part especially if you want to pursue a creative path and he was right you know now i have my own business i write books i do research and i am so grateful that you know because i have some friends who are writers who don't have a business background and they get really overwhelmed with Mm. negotiations and and advances and reviews and finding an agent and like all of the business aspect of being a writer Uh, like I was very well prepared for that because, you know, I studied business Mm. and so, um, that's what ended up happening. And then, so I went, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, I I went into business and then with social media and writing and everything, I just sort of fell in love with the technology side of everything Mm. and started to pursue a career, wanted to explore that more and then kind of fell into everything that I'm doing now.
0: So were you a big, were you a big reader, writer at school?
1: Yes, Yes, I have always been a massive reader. I'm all, even to this day. I'm always reading stuff, mm. always on the go. So, um, and then I loved writing. I was blogging. I was on, you know, GeoCities and Blogspot, and I had I've had blogs throughout my life. <laughs> so, what were you, um, what were you, know, were you blogging
0: about in those early days?
1: Uh, so the early days I blogged about, uh, for example, my life in Toronto, I did an exchange semester in Paris. I blogged a lot about that. Mm. Uh, and then when I went back to Toronto and I graduated, I started blogging about technology. So I was writing about, you know, the technology scene in Toronto, what I was learning, the emergence of Facebook, like all of these things. I was just writing, writing, writing partly Mm. just for myself. And then partly as a way to try to I think, synthesized what I was seeing into something that made sense to me.
0: Mm. And so where did you study then? You chose to study business, so where did you study that?
1: I studied at the University of Western Ontario at the Richard Ivey School of Business, which is one of Canada's top business schools. Mm. Um, and I was able, what I really loved about that program was it's a four-year program, but for the first two years, you got to study whatever you want. So mm. the last two years were hardcore business, but the first two years, Um, I studied classics and philosophy and sociology and biology and, you know, anthropology, and I kind of um, had the chance to to dabble in so many different things, which I thought was great in expanding my worldview. And then I did two year the, the last two years of the program were very, very business focused. And that's when I did a, a huge intensive focus on um, not just management, but strategy and, and, and communications mm. and, you know, just trying to figure out the actual mechanics of running a profitable business.
0: And so when did you get involved in the Toronto Entrepreneurship? You said you got involved with them. Was that... Before you went off to study, or was that after when you came back? After. That was after I
1: went back to study, when I came back. So it was 2006, Mm. uh, and then was involved, because then we moved to Switzerland in 2009. Yeah, so from 2006 to 2009.
0: Okay, so what were the projects you were involved in then? Were you involved in sort of startups in Toronto?
1: So Toronto had a a thing called uh, Case Camp, uh, which was like an open source, uh, open organization event that I would that I helped organize, where um, like once a month or twice a month we would bring um, people from the Toronto community together. We were responsible for finding the space and maybe securing, uh, getting a sponsor to like donate, you know, some drink tickets or or whatever. And you would bring people. We'd have like 500 professionals from the Toronto community come in, and then they would give. 10 minute overviews over like a couple of hours. People would sign up, they would volunteer, and the format was always that you had like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I can't remember. It was like something very short where you talked about a specific case study in your business. So Mm. something that you tried in your own business. Did it work? Did it not work? What happened? What did you learn? So I went to these. Every month we helped organize them. We were very much involved. I was very much involved in them. And so um, that was an amazing learning experience because you'd have people from startups, from big agencies, from big multinationals say, hey, like we tried to do this with tech or we tried to do this with digital marketing or we tried to do this with, you know, our business. And so it was, again, this access to this very specialized knowledge where people were telling you things that they were trying and working. Mm. And that was the generosity of the community because it was free to attend, mm. right? So you anybody could go and it was open. So we would have 500 people and then you'd have maybe like 15 or 20 people that had signed up to present. And then there would be networking and you would have drinks and meet people and hang out. Um, There was another community called the Overlap Community, which was uh, sort of design thinkers that were bringing people from different walks of life. And they would have, again, free lectures, free meetups, free dinners, free coffees. And those people really became my people when Mm. I was wondering what I wanted to do. I blasted everyone with an email saying, "Hey, like, um, you know, I'd love to go out for coffee, learn more about your work. I'd love to be helpful in any way." And every single person on that list responded hmm. to me and took me out for a coffee and told me about their job and their work, and I got many mentors that way. Hmm. So that was the type of um, you know, experience that the type of sort of community that was incredibly generous with their time and resources.
0: And did you get a job at that point? Were you working Sort of yeah, so job.
1: I was working um, at a think tank called New Paradigm that was run by a man called Don Topscott, who's a very well-known technologist. Um, I had met his daughter in business school and um, had, uh, you know, had dinner at their at their uh, house one night, not knowing who he was, not knowing anything about him, you know, as the ignorance of. <laughs> <laughs> As the ignorance of when you just go over to your friend's house and have no idea what's going on, <laughs> um, and we were having this dinner and we were just talking about everything. And I was talking about my blog and Facebook and Twitter and all the stuff I was interested in, not knowing that he was one of the leading thinkers on <laughs> you know technology and the use of technology, and he ended up um offering me a job, so I became the research coordinator on his uh, book, which is called Wikonomics, How mm. Mass Collaboration Changes Everything, and then I joined his org, his think tank, and worked on one of the syndicate research programs that he ran which was a three million dollar research project looking at how millennials what he calls the net generation the first generation to really grow up with the internet Hmm. um how that was impacting the way we were living
0: I noticed that you mentioned you've called him your mentor uh, Don Tapscott I mean how big an influence was he then on on your career
1: uh huge huge he was um a guardian angel I mean, again, to trip into the situation, to, to <laughs> walk in with a bravado of being a university student, to be like, here are my thoughts about Facebook, you know, like, <laughs> and he was like, so nice. And um, so one, the chance to work with him taught me a lot about researching, about writing a book, about marketing, about building a business, about being attuned to the needs of what people were looking for and being attuned to the pain points that organizations or institutions or individuals were experiencing so that was incredible yeah. he was so supportive um, he anytime i needed something if he could help with a contact or advice he he did it he wrote the foreword for my first book um, guided me through that process. He spoke at the launch of my second book. He was in the audience at the book (laughs) launch of my third book. Like he is an incredibly generous person who shows up. Mm. And over the course of the past few years, I can send out an email about anything and get a response, you know, so quickly from him. So, you know, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And he's just like a really wonderful person who Mm. was, Again, this theme of generosity, I would say the theme of my career was serendipity and generosity. And, and, you know, he took me under his wing, and showed me the ropes. And so much of what I do is really in his footsteps, the speaking, the writing, the research, like I learned all of that from him. Mm. And he's incredibly... Humble, you know, and Thinkers50 named him, I think he was like the number two top thinker and management thinker in the world. And <laughs> here he was taking his, his time out of his day to answer questions about, you know, when I had questions about structuring the research for Hustle and Float or getting his feedback, he was like, send it to me, I'll look at it, I'll give you comments, I'll do this. Like, <laughs> that's the type of person that he is.
0: It must be fantastic for the you know for your career to have had someone like that backing you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like
1: winning the lottery. Yeah, of course. Of course. It was like winning the lottery, because when I was starting out my career, career in quotations, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And Mm. a lot of the stuff that I did now, like didn't really exist in that capacity. So in many cases, I felt like I was fumbling in the dark, trying to take all the creative things I like to do, writing and strategy and the internet and social networks and put them together in some way that was gonna enable me to make money, you know? Mm. And so to see somebody put together this incredible career where he managed to, you know, be able to research interesting ideas, be able to spend time writing, be able to work with interesting people on interesting projects, be able to be at the forefront of this change, he was the first person that really gave me hope that this was actually possible. Like, <laughs> yeah, I I can do that too. Like a template. And so yeah yeah just you know sometimes you just need one person to do it to just prove the, mm. the ca- you know to prove the use case and so <laughs> um i started you know nowhere near his level but i started being like okay like now i'm starting to see the blueprint for what this could look like for mm. me and starting to do that um slowly so mm-hmm. yeah it was inc- it was again like a lottery ticket i'm mm. incredibly grateful for you that me- opportunity
0: you mentioned uh, that first book of yours yes we did that was wasn't it the uh, yes being part of the uh uh, barack obama's 2008 presidential campaign so just tell me how did you get involved in the campaign in the first place
1: so when i was working um with don so i helped him research uh Wikonomics, and i helped him research a book called grown up digital. I was on the research team. Mm -hmm. And my area of research at that time was how young people were using technology to organize around political causes. And this was 2007. So really gearing up for the presidential elections. And one of the people that we interviewed, so uh, John had interviewed Mark Zuckerberg. uh, So, you know, we were on the call, we had interviewed Mark, and Mm. uh, Mark had put us in touch with Chris Hughes, who was one of the co-founders of Facebook, and who at the time was working on Barack Obama's Uh, digital campaign, Mm. I think he was the director of internal organizing. So looking at um, the campaign social network, which was called Mybo at the time. And So we interviewed Chris. And, uh, you know, I I interviewed him and ended up following up with him for a couple of questions. And we ended up hitting it off. We were, you know, um, we were born the same year, we, you know, like we had a lot of things in common, he was super Mm. friendly. And so we sort of kept in touch. And then when the campaign started to pick up, I was just like, whoa, this is something really interesting is happening here. It feels really exciting. So I messaged Chris and I said, hey, would it be possible for me to come down for like a weekend and just just to see what it's like? I Mm. would really love to just be and just see with my own eyes. And he was like, listen, we (laughs) need all the help we can get. If you're going (laughs) to come down, like come down, but like stay. And, and I said, is that possible? Can I be involved? Can I volunteer? And he said, yes. <laughs> so I got this opportunity to put everything on hold for a couple of months and go down to Chicago. Um, you know, I think I'm like 23 years old at this point, 24, mm. like some, somewhere around that. And I remember just going to my husband, my, my husband now, my boyfriend at the time and saying, like, I think I just got invited to like go go down what do you think and he's always been super supportive he said you have to do this yeah. so I said okay so I ended up packing everything um you know up and then finding an apartment on Craigslist and it all came together very quickly and um yeah Chris was incredible he um I worked on his team I worked on the digital media team as a volunteer uh and then he uh, because he knew my research background he ended up kind of uh, moving me around to wherever he thought I could be useful. So it ended up being almost like a, the most incredible internship because I got to spend time with the design team, the blogging team, the social network team, the video team, the mobile team, the email team, <laughs> and getting a chance to really see firsthand like what was going on you know, how you were tracking, you know, A-B testing to figure out what email would generate the most donations or um, watching people use Mybo to organize and watching little dots pop up on the map as they expanded the campaign Mm. through grassroots organizing in places that the campaign didn't have an official office in. So that was just like magic to me. And the analytics team, there were people there from Google, from Facebook, people that had just like taken time off to participate. So this was at the very, very beginning of, micro segmentation. So really this whole idea of sending personalized information to people about the causes that they cared about, mm. like, and all of that under the, on what's happening in the backdrop of really smart, really motivated people that were like out there believing they could have a positive impact on the world. Mm. And that was just so inspirational. I mean, I was in a very political person. I didn't know a lot about politics. I think the extent of my knowledge was like West Wing, you know, so yeah. I, I didn't, um, <laughs> It wasn't like I was in it for the politics. I was in it because these people were doing really cool stuff, and I ended up getting swept along by their optimism and feeling very invested because they were so invested. Mm. So, you know, election night, uh, everyone's clustered around the screen, at, uh, the television screen, waiting for the results to come in. Where like, were you on election still- night? So I was we were at the campaign headquarters right. for a long time before until like, again, I'm, I'm not a political expert. So uh, from what I understand, you uh, there were certain votes from certain states that were coming in that would determine which way the election would go. Uh, we were waiting for the threshold where we would know for sure if we had had it or not. And we were that's how unsure it was up until like the 11th hour. And um, I think it was like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. It was. um Sorry, my chair squeaky. I'll stop. Um, (laughs) It was yeah. So it was late at night. We knew that we had had it. And then all of a sudden, everyone was like, we got it. We got it. He won. He won. And then everyone rushed. We got onto this like trolley or like bus. And we have these like secret service um, (laughs) escort and they like took us through the back streets towards Grant Park. And then I was like, I wonder how many people are going to go. And I started hearing the roar of people and it was just for miles like I can't even tell you there were so many people there and then we got to go through the um, staff entrance and we were so close we were like 20 feet from him when he was (laughs) giving his speech Um, and that was just I mean that really felt like I was participating in something historical
0: yeah I mean did you get chance to speak to him at all during the three months you were there
1: no, just like he would come by and, you know, smile and nod and, you know, but I never had a chance to be like, you know. Yeah, I wish but um, we did get a chance to hear that the next the next day when he um, he called in uh, and sort of gave a very, very lovely uh, speech of thanks um, in his book amazingly eloquent way Mm. to the campaigners and everyone was so moved and everyone was crying and then (laughs) and then as as you wouldn't believe it but right after that speech it was like everyone started packing up Mm. everything started coming down so um i got a couple of really cool souvenirs i got one of the posters from the walls of the campaign that he had signed Mm -hmm. um that i have framed in my house now
0: so Mm. i mean that must have been an amazing experience being just being part of that such a a wave of you know, feeling across the whole of America, really, but to be at the, the center of it.
1: Yeah, and people forget. I mean, people forget. But 2008, the financial crisis, and mm. um, people were scared. I, I remember feeling scared because I was hearing people losing their jobs, losing their homes. It felt very scary. So in the midst of all of that fear, to have somebody with an optimistic message saying, you know, we can do it, we can do it together, we can build something together, you don't have to do everything, you can do something, the whole idea of just donate $5 that, you know, your $5 can make a big difference, like, that really resonated with me at the time. Um, And I thought it was important to participate, and to, again, take that accountability of, you know, not everything is happening to us that we have some agency in this as well.
0: So what was the decision then that made you turn that experience and what you'd written and your you'd research into a book?
1: Uh, so being a writer in general, during the campaign, I was just keeping uh, like a document, just notes of my experiences and what I was learning. Um, and uh, so it was just pages and pages and pages of it. And I was actually met somebody in Chicago just – by chance this is my whole life is really these little (laughs) opportune meetings hard work but punctuated by incredibly lucky chance (laughs) encounters i met a gentleman who ended up being an editor at a publishing house and we were again just having a conversation didn't really know what he did or anything and Mm -hmm. just was telling him about this document and he was like well what have you learned and i started talking about some of the things i had seen and how again from my experience from the think tank how i thought they could address Certain issues in our society on a business level, and mm. you know all of that. And he said, "This is really interesting. You should write a book." <laughs> and at first, I was like, "No, what do I know about you know <laughs> American politics?" And I'm not American, and I'm Canadian. And he was like, "No, think about it. Think about it." And so, um, once again, thought about it and said, "Okay, like I'm going to try. Maybe it'll suck. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm going to do it." So said yes, signed with them, and then I think submitted a first draft like six months later. Mm uh and yeah then that ended up kick-starting a whole other phase <laughs> uh of my career so sort of going with these like little punctuated moments and then you just like have to work really hard but to kind of recognize these opportunities and to say yes even when you're not sure and even when it's a little bit scary and out of your comfort zone
0: mm. is that something that's happened a couple of times saying yes when I mean, it's that's felt like, a little bit yeah. scary
1: yeah, like, do you want to go to Chicago? I'd never lived in the U.S. I'd never worked on a political campaign. Part of me was terrified. I said yes. Do you want to write a book? What do I know about writing a political book? Yes. Do you want to start public speaking? Um, because we have somebody who'd be with Speakers Bureau who'd be interested in signing you. Uh, do you, do you want to do some public speaking? Okay, also very terrifying. Yes, I'll figure it out. Do you want to come to Geneva and uh, take on a role? Um, in an international organization, uh, terrifying to move to Switzerland. Okay, (laughs) yes. Do you want to, you know, so it was like at at certain points there was something that always just felt like this is a little scary, you know, this is not something that I've done. This is going to sort of push me to learn new things and to grow. Mm. And every single thing that I said yes to, I think helped give me that momentum. But if I hadn't said yes and I stayed with the path that was a bit more comfortable, Mm. I think it would have been like, a different kind of success you know hmm. like i think it would have been, not necessarily would have been a terrible life but it certainly would, wouldn't have been the wild ride that sometimes it feels <laughs> like my career has taken me on for sure
0: <laughs> what was the move to switzerland then what what was the opportunity where did you start to work
1: i uh got uh, so i was speaking about the Obama book mm. and talking about the lessons that organizations can learn. And one of the places I was invited to speak was the World Economic Forum that runs the Davos conference um, yeah. up in Davos, and it was based in Geneva. And uh, they offered me a job um, to go be an associate director on one of their programs on the Technology Pioneer program. And um, I was like, "Well, what do I know about any of this stuff?" <laughs> but they, you know, they said, "Yes, we think so." And um, so I said yes. And I ended up living in Switzerland for three years.
0: Hmm. Learning how was, and doing that. How was that experience?
1: I really liked the job. I wasn't particularly crazy about living in Geneva. It wasn't really like my vibe, but um the job was incredibly interesting because once again, you know, the the annual meeting of Davos, that is the thousand of the most influential CEOs and gov- heads of government nonprofits. And so I would have the opportunities to sit in rooms and hear Bill Gates talk and Mm -hmm. hear, uh, you know, like Mark Zuckerberg talk and hear all of these people that were at the forefront of of business politicians, heads of state, ambassadors, uh, ministers. And you would get into like a shuttle bus to go around the conference and you'd be next to like, I don't know, like, Prince of Norway or something like, uh, you know, I don't know, some some very bizarre thing that you're like I should not be in in proximity to these people. Um, but I think I think what I what I learned is that as long as you're open to learning, and as long as you're open about how much you need to learn, you'll generally get a pretty warm welcome. Mm. You know, I didn't know a lot at that time about international politics or or government policies or, you know, the intricacies of multinational organizations or so CEOs. You know, I, I saw Indra Nui speak. I saw, like, you were having this whole community of people. And, um, but, you know, you go into it and you say, okay, like, I'm going to learn as much as I can. And I'm going to soak up as much as I can. And I remember I would take notes of things they would reference, you know, treaties or policies or organizations or, or concepts. And then like at night, I would go home and like look them up on Google and be <laughs> like, what is <laughs> what is this treaty and what is, uh, you know, the whatever it was that I was looking up? And and that's also a part of it, too. Right. So I think mm. that's, that's the hard work part, which is I really made an effort to ask as many questions to absorb as much as I could. But then I also went back and tried to fill in gaps wherever I could on my own. Mm. Um, And so reading a lot and, and talking to people and talking to my colleagues and volunteering, um, you know, the forum has all these incredibly smart people that are focused on specific silos or specific segments, whether it was like climate change or healthcare or whatnot. And so I started meeting with colleagues and saying hey like outside of my job outside of what i'm responsible for doing if you need an extra hand i'm happy to just Mm. help um so getting a chance to read drafts of reports to sit in on to sit in on meetings and calls to like all of that was just such a good way to learn from Mm. people in the field Mm. uh and once again my colleagues were very generous and they and obviously they like the extra pair of hands. And so hmm. it was a really win-win situation where I started like reading drafts of stuff and and listening to meetings and taking notes and synthesizing ideas and really just expanding my worldview with all of these little blocks of information that at that time, I was I think twenty-five at this point, like I had no idea. <laughs> like what does a twenty five year old know about international relations and politics and all of the, <laughs> you know, the bilateral meetings that were happening. And I remember Um, At the time it was like, um, I met uh, Bill Clinton because he was announcing his Haiti initiative at the forum. Mm. And then all of a sudden my colleague was like, can you man the media desk for half an hour? And I was there at this desk with all of these reporters like asking me questions about things. And then I called the director and I was like, they're asking me questions. And he was like, you've been to every meeting, you've read the agenda notes, you've got this, you can say this. Mm. And then being on like German television at 25, (laughs) answering questions about what we thought the benefits this program would be for the international community <laughs> like there was a whole trial by fire there that mm. sometimes looking back on it I think like how did I do that like <laughs> I'd be scared to do that now how did I just do that then you know
0: yeah.
1: but um so yeah so that was an incredible incredible job
0: yeah amazing now th- your latest book hustle and flow a big um inspiration maybe that's the wrong word but a big reason I think why you wrote that was that you you said that you had basically a burnout in twenty sixteen. So yeah, what what were you doing just before that? Or what were you doing leading up to that burnout? And, and what then happened?
1: So I had just kind of finished. It, it, the story was I had just finished um, writing uh, The Dakota Company, uh, which was the second book that i um had written with uh my co-authors jay goldman um aaron uh, goldberg and uh, uh Siegel, mm. and um and i had just come home we had just come home from book tour and i was feeling really restless because it just been it had always been next the next the next there was always something and I left the forum and immediately started working on Decoded, or like I was working on Yes, We Did, and then published the book and then did the tour and then worked at the forum. You know, like there was always something on the go. And I think it was the first time in my career that I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. Mm. And for some reason, I started feeling this anxiety around not knowing what to do next and started, you know, was researching, was looking online and Ended up, ended up uh, seeing this image of on Tumblr that said you have as many hours in the day as Beyonce, um, (laughs) which just sent me into a tailspin because I was feeling like very as far away uh, from being a Beyonce as one person could possibly be, Mm. and so I ended up kind of deep diving into just starting to ask questions about why was I feeling this way, Mm. which was the very beginnings of. Hustle and float, you know, starting to dig into my relationship with my own productivity and my relationship with my own uh, creativity. And that started out sort of as this like research project, kind of like hobby thing. But then I got so drawn into it that I overworked. I was obsessed with it and I just was doing more and more and more. And then I started not feeling really great Mm -hmm. and then had a massive burnout where I felt like I broke my brain. Mm. Um, and I felt like I had uh, really ruined my capacity to be creative. My hair was falling out. I wasn't sleeping. But the worst part was that creative side of me—the side that had always been writing and experimenting, and writing stories and coming up with ideas—like that voice just went quiet.
2: Mm.
1: And that was terrifying. How long and did I it last do for? Anything? Oh God! I think like almost two months. I'm gonna say.
0: Mm. I mean, that must have I mean, been it scary. Was enough
1: i was terrified and then terrified and depressed and anxious and angry and berating myself like how did you let this happen why weren't why aren't you strong enough to just push through what's wrong with you and so that was a life altering experience because i hit a level of rock bottom that i had never hit before mm. where i had to You know, in the book, I say from an identity crisis, you know, I had identified for so much of my life as a writer. Mm. You know, who am I if I cannot write? What is a writer? What's left if I'm a writer who can't write? What's Mm. left? What do I have left to give?
0: You felt at that point you you genuinely couldn't write anything.
1: I couldn't. I felt it was like, imagine you're just reaching for something, but Mm. it's just blank space. Couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate, couldn't set up my computer, couldn't read a book, couldn't like honestly, like real talk. I just sat on my couch. I didn't even watch TV. I just sat on my couch for large or was lying in my bed for mm. large parts of it. Um, and that shook me because, in high, you know, as I was working through that, I realized that this was, this whole thing was completely preventable. Like, how did I get here? So the book that started out being about, kind of researching, I don't know, productivity and researching, the, really, the, the habits of creative people, you know, I was like learning about Beyonce and stuff, it ended up really shifting and saying, Okay, there's something deeper going on here. I, I know better. And that was the key for me, I knew better, mm-hmm. I knew I should have been resting, taking better care of myself, eating better, I knew all of this, but I wasn't doing it. So Hustle and Float became a book, instead of asking what can we do to work better,
2: Mm.
1: it started asking why don't we do it even when we know better? And why do we as creative professionals, or as I call them in the book, productive creatives, why do we do things that go against our own Best interests Mm. that hurt our performance, that hurt our creative abilities. This is nonsensical to me. Here we are wanting to do our best work, and yet we're taking actions that act in direct opposition to us doing that. And that was so frustrating. So that's kind of how it started. And then Mm. when I reached out to my network and I said, Look, this being vulnerable and saying, This thing happened to me, being sort of okay with being seen as weak or not strong enough, and saying, This happened to me, and like, I felt really broken and I can't go back to working the way that I did. It's not sustainable. Um, I was shocked by how many people, everybody, everybody I had reached out to artists, entrepreneurs, executives, writers, um, uh, lawyers, accountants, investment bankers, like musicians, everyone I had spoken to said, This happened to me too.
0: Mm. So, what is that? yeah God, that was
1: well that was just the sign that said this was deeper this was deeper than just something happening to me that there was mm. something happening to us collectively that we needed to talk about because every single person i had asked you know i would ask do you like can you list three things that you know you should be doing hmm. to better your health or your mental well-being that you're not doing and every person says yes i can think of three things yeah. i could be doing but i'm not yeah. and then you ask them have you had an experience where you've experienced some sort of Burnout, and every single person usually says yes. Mm. So we know better, but we don't do better. Why? Mm.
0: So where does the title come from? Hustle and float.
1: So uh, the title came from my uh, my friend's father, who is a river guide, and apparently it's a whitewater rafting term that he uses to describe the perfect whitewater rafting trip. Mm -hmm. Which is there's a period on the trip where you hustle and that's when you're paddling as hard as you can. You're navigating obstacles, you're choosing where to go, you're fixing problems, you're responding. It's like you all in. But then there is um, a part of the trip where you lift your paddle out of the water and you let the river do the work. That's when you can enjoy the scenery and rest and recuperate. Mm. And I believe the perfect relationship with their creativity is one where we balance these two states. Because if you hustle too much, you get tired, you'll make mistakes, you put yourself at risk. And if you float too much, it's boring and you're never challenged, (laughs) and you're never improved. Mm. So people will say to me, well, you know, I need to work and, you know, I can't take this and I can't do that. And I always say, this isn't a book, this book wasn't called Float. (laughs) <laughs> this book wasn't called Rest and Don't Do Anything. This book is called Hustle and Float. Mm. It's about doing the best mix of both both of these states to optimize your creative performance and to give you the best possible ability to to, to do your best work. Mm. And in order to do that, I had to look at why, you know, the story of the story that we had told ourselves about work. And so this book is the culmination of our relationship with productivity and creativity for Mm. knowledge workers for us up until this point and i don't think anybody else because i looked for it i don't think anybody else has summarized the story of us
2: Mm. our our
1: story of creative work and a, a summary that that uses and that looks at biology and neuroscience and cognitive behavior that looks at history um, and our, you know, our industrial, the industrial revolution, the financial crisis looks at how the events of our past have shaped us. Mm. And that looked at our media, the symbols, the mythologies, the people we worship. Nobody took all of that and put it together in one comprehensive, overarching narrative that said this is where we are in the world of work. Mm. And if we're going to talk about the future of work, if we're going to talk about improving creative performance, you cannot have that conversation without understanding the root core Mm. of how we deal with
0: work. And when you talk about hustle and flow, is it the idea that you sort of hustle and float many, many times during the day, or is it more that you hustle for three months and then float for three months? What are the sort of timescales we're talking about?
1: I think the timescale really depends on the person. There are, I think there are micro hustles where you hustle in an hour and float for 15 minutes, or you Mm. hustle for a week, or you hustle for a day. I think it's less about what those cycles look like, because those cycles will look different for every single person. Like Mm. I have daily cycles weekly cycles monthly cycles you know that i kind of have learned to adhere to the bigger thing about hustle and float is recognizing that there are ways that we are being influenced by our biology by our history by our media that is influencing the way we're making decisions about how we work and the importance that work has in our lives to our identity to our self-worth and that the best we could do for ourselves is free ourselves from these hidden forces, is to name them, bring them into the light, acknowledge them, and then going back to the beginning of our conversation, have that intentionality where we decide what parts of our legacy, what parts of our history, what parts of our work baggage we wanna bring with us. Mm. Because so many people are making decisions not even knowing why they're making those decisions. And so telling somebody, just take a vacation, just don't have burnout, just don't work so hard. Mm. That doesn't mean anything to an individual whose core fundamental belief in their heart is that if they are not successful, it's because they're not working hard enough. No person who believes that they're the reason they're not successful, that they're not worthy of their happiness, of what they have, of their success, they're not going to put their phone down. They're mm. not going to go take a break. They're not going to go (laughs) take a walk because they're fundamentally programmed
0: to do something else well that's it and so it, how is, can it, you- it is culturally there isn't it i mean i know speaking from personal experience and from you know you mentioned the the you know there's you, you have as many hours in the day as beyonce it's, it's difficult for people to float isn't it or to feel like they can float because they feel like culturally we feel like we should be driving forward all the time and pushing 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 to get to where we want to go and
1: we have built a culture where we socially reward people who overwork where mm. working hard and being really really busy all the time is seen as a badge of honor it's seen as a reflection of your importance so what's interesting is that you start to look at the story so one of what i did in the book was for example i looked at what i call our work heroes who are the mythological figures that we hold up and what you notice is we we idealize a lot of creative figures, right? Beyonce, Mm. um, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, people who when you ask, when you ask, why do you admire this person, they will say their creativity, their vision, you know, it's always like we admire their creativity, Mm. right? But then when you look at how we talk about these people, how we elevate them, we always do so through the lens of how hard they work. Mm -hmm. So for Beyonce, it wasn't just that she was a creative genius. For Beyonce, it's the fact that she has um, a legendary work ethic. For Elon Musk, it's not that he has visions for industries. It's that he's sleeping on the factory floor. Mm -hmm. It's that he's working 100-hour weeks. Um, For Tim Cook, it was that, you know, the thing that you read about him is that he sends out his first emails of the day at 4.30 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) So you start to realize that we have this cultural contradiction where we idealize Creativity. We hold creatives up on a pedestal, mm. but we worship them through their productivity. Mm. And those two things, productivity and creativity, are fundamentally opposed to each other, <laughs> because productivity depends on you doing something conti- on this continuous output every minute of the day. How productive are you being? You know, or look at your calendar. Are you in a call? Are you in a meeting? Are you working? It requires on the, it requires this like nonstop justification of every minute of your day. And then creativity requires unstructured time. It requires you to go walk your dog and wash the dishes and dream, daydream and zone out Mm. because that's when your brain kicks into a higher form to start to work on some of the problems that you're facing. Mm. So how can you have creativity? How can you create a context or situation where people are encouraged to be creative when every single business culture and most of our society's work culture rewards people that are constantly productive Hmm. and that happen to be creative too. So we're sending mixed messages to people. So then you, you bring it back to an individual. And how is an individual going to take the time to take a break To stop to pause to rest to be intentional with their recovery if they're constantly being told that if they don't do what the productive people do they're not going to be successful Mm. that their job is the entire sum of their identity that their self-worth is related by what they do that how hard they work is a reflection of how worthy they are so you're sending all these messages and then i see articles in the washington post being like stop working so hard because burnout is on the rise (laughs) it's like yeah Mm. Of course, it's on the rise, and we're, we're dealing with nothing but the symptoms. We're trying to address the symptoms, which is people are exhausted and burned out, and not the root cause, which is we have a very problematic relationship with work that impacts our psychology and our identity and our humanity on a deep, deep level.
0: Mm. It's fascinating stuff, and it feels like it's a, uh, an area that is going to get more is getting more and more attention uh, at the moment. Um, I'd like to finish Rahaf by asking you three questions. If that's all right, that, that ask most okay. people uh, mm-hmm. who come on. So the first one is: Okay, Do you have? Uh, you've already said you work at home most of the time, but do you have a daily routine that you follow that gets you? Um, I know that you said that you have the the walks with the dog with, with your dog Pixel are very important, but is there a morning routine <laughs> or a set of things that you do first thing to get yourself ready for the day?
1: Yes, I, I do. So I'm a night owl, so I have learned that my morning routine is one that really eases me into the day quite gently. Mm. So I get up in the morning, I make a cup of coffee, my husband and I sit and we'll either like watch, you know, uh, like a, a snippet of like The Daily Show or an episode of The Office, something that's just like 15 or 20 minutes, you know, just mm. to kind of wake up slowly. Um, the, I so you watch try comedy to, in
0: the morning, do you, do you mean? Yeah, something
1: okay. just fun, something okay. kind of um, that's just... Kind of puts you in a good mood. I don't know, something short. Yeah. Um, I used to try to do morning pages or journal in the morning, but honestly, my brain just doesn't doesn't operate in the morning that way, so I do that later in the afternoon. So mm-hmm. I'll have a coffee, um, then I'll probably uh, do a, a quick workout, um, and then you know, have a shower and everything, and then generally try to be at my desk by like 11. Right. And then from 11 until uh, I would say 4, I'm like working, I'm on calls or writing or doing whatever, you know, I try to batch things so that on writing days, I'm not getting interrupted or mm. on call days, I'll just have back to back calls. So I'll generally be doing work
2: mm.
1: at 4pm, uh, little Miss Pixel comes in and starts complaining <laughs> that it's time to go out. Yep. So I'll go out for about 45 minutes, you know, I'll do run my errands and, and um, just go for a walk or to the coffee shop, just kind of stretch whatever um come back at five and then from five till seven i'll probably do a little bit more more work Mm. uh and then yeah for for, or maybe till eight because if i start at 11 i'll probably go until um seven or eight also a lot of my clients are um in north america so sometimes with the time zone i'm I'm talking a bit later Mm. And then 8 o'clock I stop and then, you know, then it's just like making dinner or going out with friends or hanging out or watching a movie or (laughs) whatever it is. And I'm I'm trying really, really hard. Yeah, go ahead.
0: You're trying really hard to.
1: I'm trying really hard to be in bed consistently at like by around midnight Mm. Um, because of fluff to my own devices. I will. (laughs) up until four o'clock in the morning (laughs) uh and that that's my that is my natural rhythm is to stay up really really late and when i'm writing when i'm really writing a book i will just let myself do that because that's my peak creativity so i might sit at my desk at 3 p.m and then i might just work from 3 p.m to 3 a.m you know what i mean and just really do that late night stuff but i'm trying to be a bit more consistent uh with wake up time and sleeping time just to to not be so disruptive to my (laughs) circadian rhythms or whatever
0: I was just really interested that you watch comedy together in the morning. How did that start?
1: Well, you know, we tried this whole like uh, Miracle Morning, like journal, and it just like never worked. It just didn't work for me. I mean, if it works for you and you're a morning person, like more props to you. But <laughs> I would just, my, my brain just doesn't really operate. And so that way, and so we started, um, we would just have coffee on the couch. Uh, and then we were watching The Office. And, you know, each episode of The Office is like 20, 23 minutes. So it's actually the perfect amount of time to just be really foggy in the morning and just wake up slowly. And I actually found that when you watch something funny, you're kind of laughing the whole day just kind of started on the right foot, Hmm. you know? So, um, and I do, I do like the idea of setting intentions for my day. So, um, and I, and I'm a big fan of morning pages or in my case, afternoon pages or late night pages where I do think it's important to sort of journal and capture it. So when I Mm -hmm. do sit at my desk, I do like to think, you know i generally do like the one three five what's one big thing three medium things five small things like what is what is success going to look like for me in that day so that's very clear about what i want to accomplish but man like when you start watching the office it's kind of hard to be in a bad mood it's just so (laughs) funny and so random and then you're laughing and you know then you kind of ease into the workspace and you're like okay i can do this now it's great or sorry ease into a workout and then you know so you're you're at your desk having worked out and relaxed which i think is
0: perfect does your husband work at home as well or does he go off somewhere to work
1: no we both work at home Ah, okay in the same office right Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) okay so do you have a regular sort of coffee one of you does the round for the coffee or cups of tea or whatever
1: Yes. So I'm on like morning dog duty, you know, just feeding the dog, whatever. He makes the first round and I'll make the second round. (laughs) And then um, throughout the day, one of us will make, you know, something, um, tea or or whatever it is during the day. Uh, And it's actually really fun. Some people are always like, oh, you work at the same office. And it's like we work in the same office, but we're not really chatting all the time. Like we have a headphone rule. If the Mm -hmm. headphones are on then like, it's a do not disturb. And so (laughs) there'll be like hours where we'll be working side by side and not really talk. But what's really nice is my favorite part of the day is when we get to go on that walk and we catch up and we Mm -hmm. walk the dog and we go to the coffee shop. And that's like the best part of the Mm
0: -hmm. day is he a writer too then or does he do something completely different
1: he's a video producer so he uh, does a lot of editing and um yeah he does a lot of of editing and producing of video content so Hmm. we always joke around that i'm words and his pictures so we fit really well
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right second question then when you look back over everything that you've done uh what's the thing that you're most proud of what's the thing that you think yeah that was that was it i got that one right (laughs)
1: the thing that i'm most proud of um i think i was just really proud of myself for like going for it mm. um, i sometimes i can get in my own head and really talk myself out of things yeah. like no it's going to be dumb people are going to hate it you know whatever and um i i just think i i i'm really proud of the fact that i have developed a much stronger resilience than what my general personality would allow for um, discomfort for the unknown, mm. for not knowing what comes next, not knowing how something's going to turn out, not knowing and being able to just navigate that discomfort, especially running a business, you know, you mm. don't know where the next project's coming from, there's ebbs and flows. So I and my personality is a warrior, I'm actually most proud of the fact that I've really made peace with being okay, and navigating and trying to thrive in this area of uncertainty Mm. i think that's been an essential survival skill because it's helped me stay um adaptive it's allowed me to adapt to changing market conditions and things like that because i'm no longer as stressed out or as terrified as i would be if i don't know Mm. what's right around the corner
0: i mean yeah that can be a pretty scary thing for for people in this creative industries or where yeah it's not a nine to five full-time employment it's you don't know what's coming around the corner. It can be very difficult for some people to deal with, can't it?
1: You don't know how the project's going to turn out. You don't know if you're going to get writer's block. You don't know if at the end of the research, your findings are going to be great. You don't know if people are going to like your writing. You don't know if you're going to (laughs) sell this book. You don't Mm. know if people are going to buy it. You don't know if the reviews are going to be good. You don't know if it's going to lead to more projects. Like if you really stop and think about it as an entrepreneur or as a freelancer or as a creative, like there's so much that you don't know all the time.
2: Mm.
1: And, I've just learned to be like, I just need to do the next 10 feet, you know, the 10 feet in front of me and just kind of, and that I think has been really important because I've seen other people, um, really take a toll mentally on not knowing. Mm. And that, that, uh, that adversity, that adversity to risk is something you have to be really okay with risk. You have to be okay with not knowing. And That's forced me to create a plan, you know, a budget, a safety net, a rainy day fund, like something. It's just allowed me to be very practical about the realities of uncertainty. So I think I've become a bit more flexible than most that if something's not coming in, something's not going the way that I want. I think from a, you know, Zen state, I'm kind of like, this is a passing state and it's okay. It's Mm -hmm. okay for things to be uncomfortable. It's okay for me not to know. It's okay for me to be afraid. I can move through this.
0: Hmm. Yeah, sounds like, yeah that is. Which, good if on. you really
1: knew me, is, like, not my personality. I'm, like, the opposite. I'm, like, what do you mean I can't micro-control every aspect of this, you know? So that has been, honestly, the biggest
0: change. So, yeah, you've accepted in yourself that you, yeah, you had to think differently.
1: Yeah, and people underestimate the... um the work, uh, ironically, pun intended, the Mm. the mental and emotional work that we have to do on ourselves Mm. to challenge our own beliefs, our own biases, our own fears, our own states of discomfort. And like, that's the work I wish we get taught in school, like nobody. And I'm glad I can calculate the speed of train a leaving the station at whatever. But like, no (laughs) one told me that I had to face my, you know, innate self limiting beliefs and (laughs) and really dig deep into my psychology to understand how it was informing my worldview and how it was acting a blind spot like no one teaches us that and that's the work that people should be doing because once you do that work then everything else sort of flows from it
0: Hmm. interesting all right final question then we've talked a bit about the avengers and we've talked a bit about you know watching the office but what are you enjoying uh consuming if you like right now sort of creatively so it's this could be a, a book or music that you're listening to or a film that you've just watched or a TV series that you're watching what are you enjoying right now what have you just enjoyed
1: Oh, what have I just enjoyed? Um, I'm in uh, the title of it. So I make sure that I don't screw this up. I'm in um, the middle of reading this really, really great book. I think it's called a spy. Yeah. It's called a spy among friends. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called uh, Kim Philby and the great betrayal. And it is like based on a true story about a double agent, um, yeah, it's about a double agent during, I believe, the, the Cold War. Yeah, Kim Philby is uh, a very so well known
0: figure here in the UK. It was um he was the spy. Oh, so wasn't I it? had no idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I had like I had no no idea about any of that. And so the book it's by Ben McIntyre is incredibly well written. Hmm. Um, just a just like a, a, a very fun it crazy ride. <laughs> um, and the last book that I finished that I absolutely loved, uh, one of my favorite books, uh, was Bad Blood. Um, by John Le Carreau. Um That was about the, thera- the. I was about to say Thanos, that's Avengers, but the Theranos, <laughs> um, the Theranos uh, scandal. And if you haven't read that book, it is like, I didn't think I would be, I would find it as interesting as I did because mm. it was very like pharmaceutical and biotic, but no, it is like, a telenovela soap opera level of dramatics that if you had told me was a fake like if you told me it was a work of fiction I would have said to you there's no way that's believable you will just like not believe <laughs> all the stuff that happened it's it's the craziest thing I still get excited talking about it because I was just my jaw dropped up multiple times while I was reading that book
0: well wow, that's quite the review I will definitely check that out thank you for that recommendation and Rahaf thank you very no, much my pleasure. thank you very much for talking to me on the podcast I really enjoyed it Thank you so much for having me. That was Rahaf Harfouch there. hope you enjoyed that chat. Really enjoyed talking to her. Fascinating stuff, both in terms of her life story, but also about her work these days. I think we could all uh, learn a little bit more about how to cope in the the sort of bombardment of the digital world. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that chat uh, as much as I did. Uh, Just to let you know, I'd love to hear from you. uh, Creativeforcespod at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch on Twitter at Creative Forces P or at Guy Kilty if you want to talk to me directly, G-U-Y-K-I-L-T-Y. And just, yeah, get in touch. Love to hear from you. If you like the podcast, please rate it on your podcast app. Please leave any feedback, anything that, uh, or subscribe to it, anything that will help uh, push the podcast into further, more people's consciousness uh, is growing nicely at the moment. But it's always nice to get a bit more uh, of a push. So, yeah, get in touch. Love to hear from you. Give us a like. Give us a subscribe, whatever you can. Thank you very much. See you soon.